0: Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, if I've not had a chance to meet you, my name is Aaron, a teaching pastor for Riverwood. And man, we were way too Lutheran this morning. Uh, you guys did not clap on any uh, of the Hope Overflow songs. So, would you guys just thank them for coming? That was fantastic. Wow. Uh, really. I, I like that this is kind of becoming an annual tradition. Uh, it's absolutely wonderful to have them with us. Um, also, a, uh, an applause, a hand needs to go to all of you because uh, the fact that you're here means you successfully survived April Fool's Day. Uh, hopefully, your mental sanity is still intact and uh, didn't get caught in too many. Uh, But more importantly, today is Palm Sunday. Uh, Today is the launch for Holy Week. And so it seems appropriate for us to begin by reading the Palm Sunday story. So if you brought a Bible, I invite you to open it up to uh, Luke chapter 19. If you did not bring a Bible, uh, we will be putting all of the scripture on the screen for you this morning so that you can read right along with us. If you do not have a Bible, though, we encourage you to either download a Bible to your phone and feel free to use that on Sundays, or stop by our resource table, and uh, you can take one of the Bibles that are on there. Or if you really want, you can come and steal the Bibles that are underneath the drum set, because apparently uh, our drum set is too short for Derek, the drummer for Hope Overflow. So... I walked in this morning. I'm like, where are all the Bibles? And I walk into my office, and almost all of the Bibles are taken out of the office. I'm like, what is going on? And then I found out. Uh, So as we get ready to uh, read from uh, Luke 19, uh, let's pray and ask God to be our teacher today. So Heavenly Father, uh, before we read these uh, words that were written so long ago and have shared the story with so many people, we ask that you yet again show us. Uh, Some of us here, we've grown up with this. Uh, We we know this story in and out and uh, sometimes we can just kind of hear these things and it just goes in one ear and out the other I pray that today as it comes in an ear It would stick into the mind and it would sink down to the heart that we would hear loudly what you have for us today God, there is a reason that you brought each and every person to this today There's a reason why people are logged in online right now It's why someone is listening to this in the podcast because you have something for them So that's why I pray that you would prepare us to hear not from me but ultimately from you and your Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray and ask this. Amen. All right, so join me at Luke 19. Today we're going to be doing verses 28 through 40. And when he, Jesus, had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. If you grew up in church, you probably heard the story on this particular Sunday. It's typically nicknamed the triumphal entry. So when Jesus makes his entrance into Jerusalem, kicking off all of the events, of Holy Week. Being in full-time ministry for as long as I have, I've taught through this passage and its parallel passages in Matthew, Mark, and John several times. Sometimes when we have looked at it, we've looked at the significance of the cult, of Jesus riding on the cult, and what that would have signified to the people about Jesus claiming to be king. Other years, we've talked about the palm branches. Now, Luke doesn't draw out the palm branches. He just shows us them laying their cloaks down. But in Matthew, Mark, and John, we see that they were cutting down palm branches and waving them and laying those down for the donkey to walk on. And I've talked about the significance of that and how that was actually a bit of a political statement. Especially when you consider the fact that in Matthew, Mark, and John, it tells us that the crowds were yelling, Hosanna! When you start taking this Hosanna idea of of save us, along with the palm branches, what was happening here is a very political moment. And yet, what I've also then explained to people is how this political moment revealed the crowds didn't fully understand what was taking place. They were actually making a huge mistake. But this year, I'm not going to talk about those things. This year, we're going to look at just one verse from this passage. It's actually the very first verse. It's verse 28. So if your Bible's still open there, look at verse 28 again with me. And when he, Jesus, had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Most of us, first time we read this, we see it as a connector verse. Jesus just gets done with kind of a monologue And now we're moving into the triumphal entry. So this is just merely to transition us into the story. But it's not just a transitionary verse. It's not just a verse we read or even skim through to get to the good stuff of the palm branches and the donkey and the cheering and all of that. No, I believe that this is actually a very powerful verse. I think this verse can make a huge impact. In fact, I would dare to say this verse could be life-changing for some of you. But in order for you to understand just how life-changing it is, we have to skip ahead and look at the events of Good Friday. Now, this coming Friday, we're going to have a Good Friday service. And so even though we're going to talk about the events of Good Friday today, it's not to replace what's coming. In fact, I think that what you're going to hear today is going to really prepare you for what we're going to do Friday, Jake and I have a great plan put together. I'm excited about it. Our elders and our Sunday team, we've been praying all about this service. So I invite you, if you are free at all, come. Make this part of your week. I think you'll be truly, truly blessed by it. But even though we've got that coming up, in order for us to understand verse 28, we've got to dip into it and see what actually took place. Because on that Good Friday, Jesus suffered. But so often, we see the suffering on the cross. What we don't realize is that the suffering began in a garden. After celebrating the Passover meal, what many Christians call the last supper, because that's the last meal Jesus ate with his disciples before his crucifixion, at this typical annual Passover Jewish festival, Jesus finishes it with his disciples, they sing a song, and then they head out. And it says that they go to the Mount of Olives, to the Garden of Gethsemane. This is actually the place where the Palm Sunday story begins. He starts there, and now, in a sense, he's going to end there. They end up going out to the Mount of Olives. And it tells us that Jesus asks his disciples to pray with him, and then he goes off a little way, and he begins to pray himself. But in Luke 22, verse 44, we find out that as Jesus is praying, he begins to sweat, and he begins to sweat blood. That was a medical condition called hematidrosis. It's where someone is under so much stress that the blood vessels in their forehead burst, and the blood seeps into the sweat glands, and then when you begin to sweat, it appears that you are sweating blood. This tells us that Jesus' suffering didn't wait until all of the other stuff we're going to hear in a moment. It's beginning now in a garden as he's praying. It helps to explain why Jesus prayed, Father, if at all possible, take this cup from me. Don't let me drink of the cup of wrath, the third cup of the Passover meal. said, take this from me, but not my will be done, but yours. Within just a couple of hours after sweating blood, temple soldiers show up with Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, the traitor, and they take Jesus back into Jerusalem where he is brought before the Sanhedrin for a sham of a trial. The, the Sanhedrin was the Jewish high court. Their trials were supposed to happen in broad daylight, in the day, to show fairness, that they're truly trying to seek after the truth. Instead, they're holding theirs at night, almost in secret. And as they bring Jesus into this, even though the, the court already knows the, the verdict that they want, they want to, provide, to, to pronounce him guilty, deserving of death— But as the trial is going on, some of the temple soldiers begin to not only mock Jesus, they begin to spit on him, and many begin to even slap him, continuing the physical and emotional suffering that had already begun in the garden. After the Sanhedrin has declared Jesus as guilty, deserving of death, they're underneath Roman rule, so they cannot go and execute the death penalty themselves. They have to hand Jesus over to Rome, but that means they have to convince Rome he's worthy of death. And so they call out Pilate early in the morning. Pilate does not want to deal with these Jews, especially on their Jewish feast of Passover. And so he finds out where Jesus is from, goes, oh, that's Herod's district, and sends him off to the king of the Jews, Herod. Herod is delighted. First of all, that Pilate would want to entrust him to make a decision about someone, but especially of this Jesus of Nazareth, this miracle worker, this magic man who's been traveling all around. Everyone's talking about it, and now Herod finally gets to meet him. So Herod is hoping Jesus will perform. He wants to see one of those miracles, like multiplying the food or maybe a healing. And yet Jesus does none of it. In fact, Jesus doesn't even say anything. So Herod's like, well, if he's not going to do anything, send him back to Pilate. Pilate's a little surprised that Herod would allow him to now make a decision. The two used to be enemies, but after that moment, they kind of became friends. So Pilate interviews Jesus ends up uh, learning from the Jewish leaders and determines Jesus has done nothing worthy of death, despite what the Jewish leaders say. So he's going to let him go. Oh, but he wants to make sure that Jesus will still be punished. He'll probably get beaten some, just to show the might and rule of Rome, let these little Israelites know who's really in charge. Suddenly, as as Pilate is announcing, we're going to let him go, the Jewish leaders rile up the crowd, and they start yelling, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him crowd starts getting worked up into a fervor, Pilate realized he's about to have a riot on his hands. And so to calm things down, Pilate walks over to a basin of water, washes his hands and says, I'm, I'm done with this. I've made my verdict. I wash my hands of it. If he's killed, his blood is on you. And he hands him over to be flogged and crucified. Now the Roman soldiers were experts at flogging. What they would do is take a man or woman into this area where they would then strip their, their tunic off to expose their back, tie their hands up above them to a post where they would then take these leather thongs that at the end were metal beads or bones worked into the leather to add a little bit of weight and to afflict a little bit of damage. The first few strikes would just really sting. Then it would begin to leave bruises. Pretty soon, it would begin to slowly start ripping the skin, and blood would begin to appear. Pretty soon, the, the skin would be ripped away. Pretty soon, they'd be down to muscle. Now, if this were being done under Jewish law, they would have had to limit themselves to 39 lashes. However, the Romans had no such rule. The Romans could flog until they had decided that the victim had had enough, or if the soldier had decided he had had enough. Eventually, they quit beating and flogging Christ. But they weren't really done with him. They began to mock him. This is supposedly the king of the Jews. And so let's honor him by finding a purple cloth the color of the king and putting it around Jesus. Oh, but a king needs a crown. So they find some thorns and they weave it into the circlet and jab it onto his head. They stick a rod in his hand and they begin to worship and honor this king. But this isn't enough. They grab the scepter out of his hand, and they begin to beat him with it, adding more welts, more bruises, more blood to the body. And whenever they would bang on the head, it would jab those thorns down deeper into the scalp and skull. Anyone here ever had a head wound? Do you know how much those bleed? How much those hurt? And yet, over and over, they're beating him. At this point, I assume that a, a, a centurion had to come over and say, all right, guys, it's time. They had to stop their beating. Well, that meant they had to take that purple robe off of him. Well, his back was, was shredded so badly, the blood would have seeped into the cloth. So as they take it off, it would rip it, reopening the wounds yet again. And then they expect him to carry the patibulum. The patabulum is the crossbeam of a cross. Typically, a Roman patabulum would weigh anywhere between 75 and 120 pounds. I'm a wimp. I don't know if I could carry that with all my blood, but you put me through what Jesus went through, I definitely am not going to be able to carry it. So it's no wonder that we read in the scriptures that Jesus is unable to carry this thing, and they end up grabbing a guy by the name of Simon from Cyrene and make him carry it the rest of the way. They have to work their way out of Jerusalem, up this hill, to this area known as Golgotha, the place of the school. When they reached it, Simon would have dropped the paddle down. They would have put it on top of the stipe, and then Jesus would be laid on top, and each arm stretched out. That raw back would be put against the wood, and then nails would be driven through each of the wrists. And then the, the vertical part, the stipe, they would cross the legs over and drive one nail through into the feet upon which they would then lift the whole entire thing up and drop the stipe into a hole in the ground where Jesus would then hang. And believe it or not, the worst was yet to come. Because you see, when you have your arms stretched out and you're hanging there, eventually it gets to a place where you struggle to breathe. You can't get in a full breath of air, nor can you fully expel, expel the air. And so you're struggling to get some air in to try and get it out. And so what you want to do is you want to pop up. You go, <gasps> except that means you're pushing down on a nail that's through your feet, shooting intense pain up your legs, causing you to immediately fall back down again, causing then the nails in your wrist to hold tight. This went on for three hours. I suspect that those three hours felt like three millennium. At the end of the three hours, though, the scriptures record that Jesus cries out, it is finished. And he looks up at heaven, and he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he breathed his last. The amazing thing about all of that, though, is that Jesus knew it was going to happen. Jesus was not caught by surprise, of being arrested in the garden. He he wasn't shocked when he was being mocked at the trial. He wasn't a little stunned and overwhelmed that they said we're going to flog you. He didn't say, what are you doing, when they brought out the nails. He knew everything that was going to happen. A couple years ago, we studied the book of Mark here at Riverwood. We saw in the book of Mark, Jesus told his disciples three times what was going to happen to him. He was not surprised by any of this, which is what makes Luke 19, 28, not just a verse we skim through, not just a transitionary verse. It helps it reveal that it is a powerful verse. So if you have your Bible open still, look again at verse 28. And when he, Jesus, had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. That phrase there, went on up ahead, means that Jesus was out in front of his disciples. We usually envision Jesus walking along with his 12 disciples, and that probably was the case some of the times. But we've started discovering that there was more people around. There's like this like entourage that's following around Jesus. And typically, it just seems like Jesus would be in the midst of the crowd. They'd be asking him questions. He'd be teaching more. I mean, because they've got all this travel time. In fact, when we read the scriptures, it seems that Jesus is very unrushed. It seems like it's the disciples who are usually like, "Uh, uh, Jesus, come on, we need to keep going. Or, or, well, let let someone else deal with that. Like in John chapter 4, when Jesus is at a well talking with a woman from Samaria, the Samaritans were hated by the Jews. So these Jewish disciples go into town to buy some food, and they're thinking, like, Jesus, we'd just like to get out of here. A lot of Jews, when they were traveling from the north part of Israel to the southern part, or, or vice versa, they would end up going around Samaria. But here Jesus is going through. In fact, John 4 says that Jesus had to go through because he knew he had to have this conversation with this woman at the well. When the disciples come back, they're a little shocked. They're a little stunned. Jesus is talking with this woman? And you can just get the sense, like, they're uneasy, they're uncomfortable, they're, they're wanting out. And Jesus is like, no, we're going to stay. And the scriptures record that they end up staying for two days. Or, or how about when Jesus is on his way to go heal a little girl? A synagogue leader named Jairus says, my little girl is sick. Jesus, can you come and heal her? So as they're on their way, there's all this crowd around, they're all excited, they're going to get to go watch a healing. And suddenly Jesus stops everything and says, who touched me? The disciples kind of look at Jesus like, what do you mean, who touched you? Like there's a whole crowd around you. Like, no, no, no. Healing power just went out from me. Someone touched me. There was a woman who'd been bleeding internally for 12 years. Doctors couldn't figure it out. And somehow she became convinced: if I even just touch the fringe of his robe, I'll be healed. And so here he is, on his way to go heal someone, and Jesus stops everything and gives his time and attention to this woman. Jesus just seems really unrushed. In fact, the story of the feeding of the 5,000 begins with Jesus in mourning. His cousin, John the Baptist, has just been killed, just been beheaded. And so Jesus wants to get away with his disciples, to just go and pray and to mourn. But as they're pulling up to the shore, there's a whole crowd of people Waiting for him, and it says that Jesus saw them like sheep without a shepherd, and so he takes the time to minister to them. He teaches them, he heals them, and as evening rolls on, the disciples like, uh Jesus, we don't have any food. We better let the people go." Jesus like, "No, we'll we'll take care of it. We'll feed them," leading to the miracle of the feeding of the five thousand. Jesus just seemed really, really unrushed. Wherever he was, he was fully present. He just always seemed to be right there with the people. Except in Luke 19, 28. Suddenly we see him ahead of the disciples. With his face set on Jerusalem. Even though he knew he was going to be arrested, going to be mocked, going to be beaten, going to be flogged, going to be crucified. In the legal world, uh, there's this Latin uh, phrase that gets used, sua sponte. Now, I am not a legal expert, uh, nor a Latin expert. So, take this illustration with a grain of salt. But apparently, sua sponte means that the court is acting of its own volition, uh, 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 for its own purposes. For instance, if a court has made a request of one or two parties who are about to bring a case to trial, and they don't fulfill the request— the court has the right to dismiss the case sua sponte. Meaning, we voluntarily, of our own accord, dismiss the case because the parties have not done what they need to do. It's voluntary. Jesus is walking into Jerusalem to be crucified sua sponte. He is not being forced by the Father to do this. This is not, despite what some skeptics say, this is not divine child abuse. Nor is he going and suddenly going to be shocked, like, whoa, the Romans are a little more powerful than I thought. I didn't think this would happen. He he does this voluntarily, willingly. In fact, in John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, he said this. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus knew full well what was about to happen, and yet he went willingly. I don't know about you, but the question I find coming to my mind is how? How in the world could someone do this? Like, how could someone intentionally walk in knowing? They're not just going to get beat. They're going to get flogged. They're going to have a crown of thorns jabbed on their head. They're going to be absolutely mocked and ridiculed. They're going to basically hang naked in front of the world where nails will be driven through the wrist into the feet. The, they're going to not be able to breathe. Their back is going to be rubbing up against that, that cross. And they're going to die. How? I think Hebrews 12.2 answers that question. Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Notice it did not say for the joy found in the cross, No, there there was no joy on that Good Friday. There, There was no joy in the nails. Jesus wasn't laughing as they flogged him. He didn't have a big grin as they're slapping him. He didn't think it was a funny moment when he starts sweating blood. There was no joy in the moment. No, it says, for the joy set before him. In other words, there was something awaiting him, something so worth it, he could walk ahead into Jerusalem to the faith that awaited. What was it? What could possibly have been so worth that hell? I'll tell you. You. You were the joy that was set before him. Jesus was there with the Father and the Spirit when they created all of the, the, the earth. And then they created humans, and they put the, their, their image into mankind so the humans would l- be like God and act like God and, and to be in relationship with God. But when Adam and Eve sinned suasponte, they knew the penalty was death. And so Jesus, of his own volition, comes to earth, takes on human flesh to ultimately walk into Jerusalem to die in the sinner's place. You were the joy. He wanted so much for you to be back in relationship with God. He did not like that sin had stained your soul, had ripped you apart, had damaged the image of God within you. He wanted you back in relationship with him, and there was nothing that he wouldn't do to do that. And so what was it that allowed Jesus to walk ahead of his disciples into Jerusalem? His love for you. And so because Jesus held nothing back to bring you to him, I want to invite you to hold nothing back and come to him. If you are here today and you are not a follower of Jesus, you may have even heard some of this story before. But you now are realizing Jesus loved you so much, he willingly went into Jerusalem to die for your sin. The penalty of sin is death, but he did not want you to pay it, because if you paid it, you would be eternally separated from God. Instead, he comes in and pays it for you, so you could come into a relationship with him and live eternally with God. But what it means is you cast all of your faith, all of your trust, all of your identity into this story of Jesus's death and resurrection. In John 3, and I intentionally did not put this one on the screen because I just want you to hear it. In John 3, Jesus is having a conversation with a Jewish leader. Jewish leader has all sorts of questions trying to figure stuff out. And in the midst of this conversation, Jesus says this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Did you hear it? God did not hate the world because of their sin. God loved the world. And by the world, it didn't just mean the earth globally. It was the people on it. He loves you So much, he was willing to give his son for you. Jesus willingly came for you. But then he says, whoever. It it means that the Christian faith is not just for Christians. It's just not for those born into a Christian home. It's not for those who just grew up in middle uh, class America. It's not just for those who, this is the tradition of my family. No, this is for whoever This is for no matter what faith you were born into, no matter what you've been struggling with, no matter what sin has beset you, no matter what you may doubt and struggle with right now, whoever, and it's whoever believes, that is to put all of your trust, all of your faith, all of your identity, it's holding nothing back. But then notice when whoever believes in Jesus, it says that they find eternal life. And that eternal life isn't just heaven someday. It begins now. You get to have a relationship with God here. But Jesus went on. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Did you hear it? God did not send his son to condemn the world because you see, the world was already condemned. We were already in our sin. We didn't need condemnation. No, we needed rescue. That's why Jesus came. If you have never put your faith into this story, into Jesus, I invite you to let today become your spiritual birthday. We started Riverwood Church for you we did not start this church to try and just take Christians from other churches. We didn't start this because we didn't think others were doing it well enough. We started this because we thought there were people just like you who needed to hear this message. And that one of the ways to bring this message to people here in Iowa is to have a church where there are people who know this story and are willing to live this story and share this story. And so we share it with you. If you are ready to put your faith in Jesus... Most people mark the moment in prayer. There's nothing magic about the prayer, but they've just realized, this is what I need to do. And so if this is you, I invite you to pray with me right now. Heavenly Father, you can see hearts. You can see minds. You can see the person right now who is doubting. You can see the person right now who thinks this is ridiculous. You can see the person who, though, is convicted. And they are hearing from you. And this is coming from you to them. Heavenly Father, I pray right now they would put their faith fully in you. That they would be willing to confess their sin. That they would hold nothing back. And as they give it all to you, realizing that your sacrifice, Jesus, on the cross was complete. It was enough. It was finished. Their sin can be forgiven, it can be forever removed, and they can come into a relationship with you. So, Father, I pray right now you would hear their prayer as they give this to you. Heavenly Father, for the person who still doubts, for the person who thinks this is mythology, for the person who doesn't want to give it all up to, for you, I pray you would continue to work, that you would continue to hound them, you would continue to pursue, that you would continue to go ahead, not just into Jerusalem, but into their life, because I know you love them, and I want to see them find life and freedom in you that they wouldn't wait for stones to cry out in praise of God, that they would get to be a part of the throng that declares the good things you have done. And the greatest thing you did, Jesus, was to go to a cross for us and rise out of a tomb. So help us, Father, to seek you, to worship you, to follow you. Help us with our doubts. Help us with our sins. Help us with our addictions. Help us, Father, to give it all to you because you, Jesus, held nothing back to receive us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I realize many of you, though, who are part of Riverwood, after hearing me share and invite those who don't know Christ to put their faith in him, you're saying, yeah, but Aaron, I I know this story. What do I do? (laughs) Same thing. Yeah, at Riverwood, we talk about inviting the spiritually disconnected to find and follow Jesus. Oftentimes when we hear that phrase, spiritually disconnected, we think of people, oh, they didn't grow up in church, or they've wandered away, they're, you know, they've gotten caught up in the party scene, or, or whatever. But sometimes when we're honest with ourselves, we have moments and seasons where we feel spiritually disconnected. Where God seems distant. Our prayers just seem to stop at the ceiling. Our prayers never seem to be answered. We seem to be still stuck in that addiction. We seem to just be caught on the treadmill, of life. so I want to invite you to do the same thing that I just invited those who have never put their faith in Jesus, and that is simply to hold nothing back. So as we go to the communion table, as we take of those elements, those are a reminder that Jesus held nothing back. He did it all for you. And so what is it the Holy Spirit is asking you to give to Him? Is it some addiction? Is it the way you've been handling your money? Is it the way you're using your time? Is it the way you've been treating someone or avoiding someone? What is it that the Holy Spirit is asking you to give? Because he wants all of you. Because it actually will free you. So as you come to these elements, remember that that wafer, that represents the body of Christ broken for us that when you open it up and you take of the juice, that represents his blood, which was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And as you take this into you, you're saying, Jesus, I want to give all of me to you. I'm going to ask, though, that if, even after I invite you to put your faith in Jesus, you are saying, I still don't believe any of this. If that's you, I'm just going to ask that you very respectfully not go to these elements. Not because we're trying to keep something away from you, is that really what we believe is the best thing for you is to put your faith in Jesus. So I would rather you stay where you're at and wrestle with God than to try and put on some front and come and take these elements when it's meaningless. But if you are a follower of Jesus, you've put your faith in Him, even if there's still something that's, that's in your life, I invite you to come. Because this might be exactly what God uses today to help you come out of whatever it is you're fighting. So even if this is your first time ever with us at Riverwood and you know the story of Jesus and you've put your faith and identity into it, come and worship the one who held nothing back and invites you to give it all to him. Let us do this now in remembrance of him.